I want to find out from you, how do you think, as libertarians, we should define ourselves? Because I find that for a lot of people, even in the UK, their experience of a libertarian could even just be Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. Um, yeah, that's a, I think that's kind of a... It's kind of a complicated topic. Um, well, let, let me ask you: wh What is your? Um, where do you come from in terms of that yourself? Well, the the term libertarian. If I were to say that to some European friends of mine, I mean continental friends. So, for instance, a French friend asked me that recently. Oh, a libertarian? What's that? That's an anarchist, isn't it? So immediately that conjures up images of anarcho-communism, or the kind of anarchism that was going on in Spain in the early, early uh, 20th century. So not quite where I'm coming from. Where I would begin is I'd start talking about the non-aggression principle. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, fundamentally, that's what I believe. And this is how it impacts on my view of politics, so the state primarily. And th that's where it tends to go from there. So really, I find myself defining the position primarily in philosophical terms almost and then talking about the political consequences of that what do, what do you find if you're if you're asked to to define yourself in that sense i i think that um maybe until a few years ago i would not have thought it was that complicated of a thing to get across but i find that the rise of left libertarianism yeah. And certain people associated with them has made it, in a way, more of a challenge to be more clear in what we define, uh, you know, what we mean when we talk about our our, our views. Mm -hmm. um, because you have left libertarians saying that, well, we're, we're really not only left libertarians, but the what, what's called the, the thickers, people that believe in a thick libertarian yes. conception, which I'm very skeptical of for various reasons. Yes. Um. Um. Well, no, no, Chomsky, they, for instance, as well. The, well, what I'm what I'm talking about is the, the the people that are advocates of what they call thick libertarianism, which is primarily pushed initially by the left libertarians like um, um, Kevin Carson, Roderick Long. Yes, yeah, these types, but also advocated in a different form by some. I won't say right libertarians, but some uh, non-left libertarians. Um, the, my thinking has evolved over the years on this issue. Um, I would have started with aggression initially, but of course if you're talking to regular people, you can't start with that sort of abstruse idea. Mm. Um, I think the – I mean look, I heard a lecture in the UK recently with Jan Lester. Um, he was speaking at the Libertarian Alliance in London. Yes. And there's two libertarian alliances, so I'm never quite clear which one is which. One is Sean Gabb, one is the other one. But he was speaking, and I think he's a brilliant, smart guy, very articulate, but I think he's totally confused on his approach to libertarianism. He did have yeah. some good points, though. I think his approach is that the, the, the common conception is there are two ways to approach this, which is justificationism, as he calls it, deontological, rights-based… And the other yeah. is utilitarianism, and he says he rejects both, yeah. and he adopts a third way, which is Popperian conjecturalism. Um, I think that's completely confused and self-contradictory, and I think he actually employs both of the two types of libertarian reasoning that he says he eschews, which is utilitarianism and natural rights thinking. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he adopts these fuzzy terms like uh, don't impose, do no harm. But he did make mm-hmm. an interesting point that you know, if you're for libertarianism, liberty, then you're basically for liberty in some kind of general primordial sense. And there's some yes. intuitive basis that most people have, which is that let people be alone. Now, he says from interference, which I take it to mean in a rigorous sense what Hoppe refers to as conflict, and conflict is always conflict over scarce resources, Um, and property rules arise as a response to the the possibility of conflict and as as an attempt to try to solve that, to allow there to be cooperation between people. You could actually call our philosophy… Uh, cooperatism, which I think Henry Hazlitt uh, uh, posited at one point in his book. You were you were mentioning economics in one lesson, were you there? No, it was actually in his book. No, it was it, it was his book on uh, utilitarian book on uh, on morality. I think it's called The Foundations of Morality or something like that. The Henry right. Hazlitt book. It wasn't it wasn't economics in one lesson. It was his, it was his other book. Um, and in the introduction or somewhere in the beginning, he talks about. He prefers the term cooperatism, and I've, you know, in America, we're some people using the word voluntarist now because they're talking about everything should be voluntary. You know, Leonard Reed with C said anything that's peaceful. So there's this idea that what we're in favor of is peacefulness, mm. cooperation, voluntary interaction, or liberty. Now, I've always thought, and I still think that liberty is a dependent term. It's the liberty to do what you want with things that you have the right to control, and the only reason that matters is when there's the possibility of conflict, which is why we need property rights. So I believe basically that the entire realm of political theory and political philosophy is concerned with norms or rules that govern what action is permissible. The only reason yes. this, this concept would come up is if… There's a possibility of conflict. If there was no, no such thing as a possibility of conflict, we, there were, it would make no sense to have rules designed to allow people to act without conflict. And yes. what conflict means is the, in, the incompatible attempt by two or more people to employ a resource, a scarce means, at the same time for the same purpose. Yeah. So the entire – so all property rights, as, as Rothbard said, all – Human rights or property rights, and I believe all property rights are rights about the control of scarce resources or resources that you could say can be conflicted over, that there could be conflict over. So I think the entire endeavor is humans tend to have empathetic feelings for each other. They want to live in cooperation with each other. They, to some degree or the other, recognize the benefits of society, which is… A division of labor and cooperation, reputation, uh, living with each other instead of on our own, and all these things come together over time to result in a system of rules about who can use what. And these rules are always property rules, and they're always rules about who gets to use these resources. So then really the only question is what are the fair or just or appropriate rules? And when you drill down to it on that level, that is really where there's all the differences lie, and that's really where libertarianism is unique from all the other competing philosophies. 
you could say there's a thousand or a million philosophies out there. But from the libertarian perspective, there's only libertarianism and non-libertarianism. And non-libertarian philosophies, they have their differences, their nuances. You could distinguish fascism from from a theological despotism, you know, from uh, communism, mm. from welfare statism. But in the end, they all boil down to some kind of social recognized rule whereby a resource can be taken from a previous natural owner. This is where Rothbard and Hoppe, I think, Hans Hermann Hoppe, his greatest student, uh, are so important when they define the natural state of things. Now, when you define the natural state, it doesn't necessarily mean the just or the justified state or the normative state, but it is a natural state because that is how resources in the real world get used. Someone has to first use a thing for it to ever be brought out of the state of nature and into into employability or into use. And so if, if I you can believe, just interrupt you for a moment, sure. I think sure. uh, I think the the greatest example of that, I really love it, is in the Ethics of Liberty, where Rothbard uses the Robinson Crusoe argument and just illustrates things from there and then introduces Friday as the other person. And so then you begin to see property rights and you begin to see potential conflict and what the nature of the interactions would be with another human being. I mean, he, he very naturally and logically extrapolates that to, well, society at large as well. Yes, yes, and I think that th that hypothetical type example is useful in, econom in pure economics, of course. Yes. But it's also useful in political theory, um, and in, in political theory, the the usefulness of that hypothetical – first of all, that example is not as insane in a sense or as crazy or as unrealistic as, for example, the, um, the hypothetical example of the evenly rotating economy used by Mises and by Rothbard to illustrate uh, the workings of a free market economy. Although that's a useful pedagogical tool, it's, it's almost unimaginable to conceive of a world where there's an evenly rotating economy because it abstracts away from reality. It, it takes away uncertainty and all these things. It's a useful tool to imagine, but it's not really realistic. However, it is possible to live by yourself on a desert island, so that's a real example. It is possible yeah. to live with one other human. It is possible to live with a large number of other humans. These things are all real-world examples, and I think what's beneficial about the Crusoe, Friday, Robinson Crusoe uh, example is that if you imagine someone alone in the world, they have to grapple with parts of economic concepts that we deal with now. They have to have scarce means to live. They have to employ resources to live. However, there's no concept of conflict because there's no one else to have a conflict with. right? So there's no need for property norms. There's no one to have a right against. So that, that helps you see that property rights arise only in a social context and only when there's the possibility of conflict, but having other people around also gives you the possibility of the division of labor and immense wealth and trade and social cooperation and society. Um, so it's – I won't say it's a two-edged sword, but there's benefits and disadvantages to society. The advantages are obvious. The disadvantages, there's a possibility of conflict, and what 
most normal non-psychopathic humans do is they they come up with rules for us to get along with each other so that we can benefit from each other without conflicting with each other and running into conflict with each other. So to return to your original question, I think libertarianism is about liberty, but liberty is defined within a sphere of controlling your own destiny, using resources at your disposal, but without conflicting with other people. So in a way, I think liberty is a derivative concept. It's liberty within a property context. So I think property rights in a way are the most fundamental thing, and the, but the, reason is, the reason is that property rights arise. The concept of rights arise. The concept of liberty only arises because of the possibility of conflict. Because we live in a world of scarce resources, because there's this possibility of conflict or clashes between people's bodies or the things that we want to use to get what we want in the world. And therefore, I think libertarianism is simply the state of affairs in which there's a widespread social recognition of the legitimacy of property norms established roughly in accordance with the Lockean idea… That is the first user of a resource has a better claim than someone else unless he gave it to someone else by contract. So basically it's contract and first appropriation. So I would say liberty is the right to use these resources defined and socially recognized in accordance with, with, with first appropriation principles, which is Locke, and contract. So it's basically consensual, which, which is why the word voluntarist I think is yes. used… By some libertarians, is the yes. idea of con con consent, consensualness, or voluntariness. So, if I were to summarise, I'd be saying, well, as a libertarian, you're claiming that you care about these concepts such as liberty, and in doing so, you're taking into account that we're dealing with a society of rational human beings trying to develop mutually beneficial uh, relationships with others within that society and the reason for doing so is there's scarcity of resources and we don't want it to come to blows so we're trying to get along it's safer for us we find that more profitable but i find as we're defining all of these things we are fundamentally bringing in a lot of rationalistic concepts. We're talking about a lot of things that we would just think intuitively. We are basically claiming a lot of rational truths. And that's what uh, Mises' human action and Hopper's uh, The Economics and Ethics of Private Property uh, are fundamentally about. They're about reclaiming rationalistic truth to really make these things that we, we, we believe and hold to concrete. I think, that's, I think that's roughly correct. I think what you're talking about is the human endeavor of what we call justification. So, so, so let's back up for a second. I, I don't want to say that um, ethics and norms and morals and rights are self-evident like Thomas Jefferson might have said, but in a, in a sense there's something to that. Uh, I think Ayn Rand was correct when she when she said that the 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 ethical has to be the practical, right? And by that, what I mean is, in a society of people at different levels of development and uh, civilization, 
to expect there to be society at all, there has to be some kind of rules that people can not only follow, but they have to be able to believe they're somewhat legitimate and just, which means they have to be somewhat intuitive and common sense or at least compatible with our psychology and the way that humans develop. Yes. And I think that they actually are. I mean even you know, even dogs recognize their dog bowl, right? They're, these exactly. are just stupid animals. And there there's a there's a common sense aspect to the rule first come, first own. You know, I had this piece yeah. of property first, this piece of land, and if you come and try to oust me from it, I'm going to resist you and we may come to blows. And if there's any kind of appeal to justice to the community at large or to each other or whatever, you know, the original owner has a better claim than the second guy. The second guy could yeah. never have a better a better claim uh, to it. As human society develops over time and we became richer and we become more sophisticated and we have more and more resources to develop towards these ever more uh, intricate arguments about smaller and smaller things, you know, boundary questions, things like this. People find resources and time to argue and to try to figure these things out in a more or less fair way. And when I say more or less fair way, both sides are usually appealing to some general neutral third party or to the community at large. They're making arguments, and they're appealing to commonly held values or norms that everyone more or less agrees with, first come, first serve, contract, etc. And so then, they, then everything else is just a question of detail. Okay, then in fact, who transferred this to whom? What's the, is, is there proof of it by written document, whatever? Um, and over time, people start to equate these procedures, these legal procedures with justice itself, which I understand because yes. they're intricately bound up. There's a slight mistake there, I think, in equating the two because justice is not the same as a procedure. But at a yes. certain point in time, you have nothing else to do but to rely upon a procedure for epistemic region, re reasons. right? You have to have a method for figuring things out. Um, so I think that's what tends to happen in society, and the legal systems get more and more sophisticated. In the last 200 years, we've gotten more and more sophisticated. There's more and more publication. There's more and more availability to information. There's more and more sophisticated legal scholarship. At the same time, the state control of things, state regulation and state legislation have intruded into this field, interfering with it and making it less and less – I won't say rationalistic, but less and less uh, naturally just. So mm. at the same time that it's easier now to figure out what the law is, the law has become less compatible with natural justice because the state yes. has interfered with it with legislation. So we've come to the point now where people try to abide by the law. They think it's somewhat connected to natural justice and common sense and common justice, Yeah. and yet they also have a natural skepticism, which they should have, about the overall justice of the law because they know that it's just a bunch of arbitrary rules announced by the central states and their courts. So you have this tension. Yes, right now. Uh, I mean, I I think it's fairly commonplace actually in the discussions I have with family, friends, people I talk to on the train, that they have never really thought about the difference between law and legislation, 
Right. When, when I explained to them that um, law, developing social norms and rules for how we interact with each other, could be no different to discovering a, a scientific law in a sense. Right. When, when I try to explain that to them, they've never even thought about that. They've only understand legislation, it being dictated what is correct behaviour. I mean, you explain to them that um, you know, people can get that wrong. People can say that for one man to you know, find another man sexually attractive and they do whatever they want behind closed doors is wrong and they need to be punished. And they think about that for a second and say, oh, yeah, I guess so. That doesn't accord with what I intuitively understand to be morally right or wrong. At which point I could then introduce the non-aggression principle into the discussion and try and coax some libertarian um, leanings out of that person. Um, yeah, yeah, but, and, and even your 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 typical. And so, what you're discussing is really the rise of legal, what we call legal positivism, right? Legal exactly. positivism exactly. is the idea that which everyone is acclimated to nowadays, right? Legal positivism is the idea that. Um, that not only what the law is, you find out what the law is by studying what the courts will do, what the, what the government is going to do, like yeah. the practical everyday effects, which is sometimes called legal realism in the U.S. But it's, it's sort of the, the further idea that that's the only law you could ever know, which is a type of ethical skepticism in a sense. right? It's, it's, it's this idea that there are no… Eternal, immutable, external, objective criteria of ethics that we could ever use to judge yeah. any ethical theory. All we can know is what some kind of authoritative source tells us. Now, yeah. religious people think that's God, right? Yes. Modern liberals, liberals in the U.S. sense, uh, uh, leftist uh, status yeah. think it's the state. The state can announce what they can decree this, and they have no That's other true. standard to go by, but almost no one really sticks to this consistently because – so you'll find, for example, um, I don't know, a, a death penalty case in the US uh, or some Supreme Court ruling that the left or the ACLU doesn't like, and they will fight it tooth and nail, and they will argue to the court, here's the rule you should adopt, like in the gay rights case recently in the US. So they are appealing to some higher standard. They are telling yeah, the court exactly. the law that you've been enforcing is wrong according to some external standard. Yes. Now, they usually retreat to the Constitution or some kind of interpretation of it because that's something written down they can refer to yeah. that anchors them in something tangible and real because they yeah. can't they can't really appeal to a natural law authority because they don't have one. Yeah. So, but they're appealing basically to a natural law or an external authority without explicitly saying it, right? The, but the point is, everyone implicitly and intuitively has an idea that the court or the government could make a mistake. The government could do something wrong. And if you believe that, if you believe the government could ever do something wrong, like killing an innocent person or nuking Nagasaki or you know the concentration camps in germany whatever if you just think of any example of the government doing something wrong then you have to have some what we call higher law standard of justice that you think is outside the government itself and that the government itself is to be judged by 
The problem is most people are not equipped to come up with a justification or an explanation of this higher law standard. So they resort to constitutions or the common sense sure. of mankind or something that's quasi-positivistic in a sense, quasi-legally yeah. positivistic. And we're, we're focusing more on the legal side of things, but I, I think it would be fair to say in the West, uh, in other fields of study, I think we have drifted away from any rationalistic basis of, upon which we would think about things, discuss things. And I think we have drifted towards, in, in many cases, scientism. Yeah, I, I, th I think I think you you can you can see that so clearly. It's highlighted so clearly when you see debates between religious people. So, for instance, an evangelical Christian debating someone like Richard Dawkins, and the scientism is really coming out. The scientists, where they they will oftentimes openly say that they think that science is the only way to determine truth. Why, why don't you Why don't you define what you mean by scientism? Because I feel like some of your listeners may not be clear about that. That that critique or that term, scientism. Yeah, that's true. Scientism is the, well, as I've just said, it's, it's the belief that uh, the, the scientific method, so experiment, repetition, observation, is the only means for determining truth, the kind of objective truth you were, you were talking about that people um, intuitively feel is there before. But, of course, that's very easily disproved. I mean, the, the statement itself, science is the only it, way to determine truth, can't be proven with the scientific right. method. So, yeah, the basis of their philosophy is not scientific according to their own criteria. Precisely. I mean, they're, they're using rationalistic thinking as the basis upon which they, they do oh, things. I mean, this is why I think, I mean, I am a libertarian, but I also, and I, I'm, I'm, um, leery of, of thickism, as they call it, but I do think that it's almost impossible to be a good, solid libertarian without a good basis of understanding of, of, of Austrian economics. Um, and Mises uh, talks about what you're talking about. He has a, what he calls dualism, right? where he, he says there are two realms of existence or understanding, and they have different modes of understanding. right? There's the, uh, there's the causal realm which is a study of the laws of cause and effect, the physical laws. And then there's a teleological realm, which is a study of the consequences and the way that agents with purpose uh, behave in the world. Now, I don't know if he logically proved that that's the only two realms, but those are two obvious realms, and they have different rules uh, of applicability. And what's happened is that the, the mainstream world, the the liberal arts, the humanities, and the natural sciences have almost all adopted this, uh, this dichotomy, which is that to be true science, it has to be the physical sciences, the causal sciences. Yes, exactly. And I would agree that the, the scientific method is generally appropriate for the causal sciences. There's a reason for that. Which is actually outside of their field. It's a meta field or an ontological field, you know. But there's a reason for it. But it's still true. But they use the word science to refer to anything that's objectively true. Anything, anything that's not natural sciences is not objectively true, right? Mm -hmm. So they basically denigrate all the fields outside of the hard sciences to some kind of quasi science or or pseudoscience or mystical verbal utterings or whatever. 
And as a result, because they were so so successful in their physical theories and chemistry and physics and yes. mechanics and engineering, then the economics and sociology and psychology, they all started trying the soft to soft sciences. The soft sciences yeah. started trying to pretend and ape the methods of the hard sciences yeah. to get treated like a real science. Exactly. Right? Whereas they all basically bought into the same uh, idea that to be a real science, you have to you have to have a testable uh, proposition or a falsifiable proposition. So yeah, so I think that's one, of, that's one of the big, one of the big problems in in, in the way people approach uh, yeah. what I would call scientific problems because to me, science is just the general study of the the systematic study of of knowledge. Um, yeah. You can have a science of ethics, you can have a science of economics, you can have a science of philosophy, uh, whatever, and they may be teleological instead of causal related, but it doesn't mean they're not sciences. But it does mean you have to apply different methods to determine the truths in them. Sure. I think that's really important that we really understand that as libertarians because when we think about it, when we think about how economics, all these other social sciences, we might call them soft sciences, and scientific fields and various areas of study have more or less abandoned rationalism. And I believe a part of that is the fight against religion or superstition, really, abandoning that, that previous thinking and saying, well, no, look how, as you said, look how science has helped us to develop new technologies, develop our thinking about other things, look at how it's causing us to progress, how it's better society. And so to move outside of that realm and to say, well, no, using our mind, we can, we can think about things and we can discover truths. It seems like right. a kind of mysticism almost. Or as I think uh, as some earlier philosophers denigrate this stuff, they call it metaphysics, right? The word metaphysics is a, is yeah. an, is a, is a term of a pejorative or a term of denigration, right? I, I think that I'm not a philosophy uh, – I'm not a philosopher. Um, but, but my view – this is related to Misesian dualism and the Misesian praxeology in particular. Yes. His, so – to back up for a second, praxeology is Mises' action axiom, right? His idea of what are the characteristics that explain what happens when humans act, and it's pretty simple. It's basically a human being has some kind of vision of what's going on, some kind of vision about the future, vision about alternative futures, and an idea of what they want what they want to happen in the future as opposed to not happen. So they have an idea about how they can interfere. With the world to cause to happen what they want to happen. Yes. All those things. It sounds very simple and 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 obvious, but I think it's very profound because it shows why humans always employ scarce means, which brings into the whole thing about uh, this. This this gives rise to the possibility of conflict and the need for social norms and property rights if there's more than one person around. Yes. And it also. Uh, explains why they need knowledge about the world, and the knowledge is twofold. It's knowledge about what works, that is, what causal laws are there, and they acquire that by experimentation and by their life experience and by exper- yeah. whatever, learning yes. from others, and also an estimate of what might happen in the future. That's a forecast, and that's the future. Yes. The future is uncertain. So there's a little bit of entrepreneurial aspect to any action because you're trying to forecast and predict what the future is, yes. right? 
And so all these things tie into what human action is, what praxeology discusses. I forgot where I was going with this, but it- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty good place to be anyway. Going from there, I automatically want to start discussing Hopper's argumentation ethics. Okay. Um, I've spoken about why rationalism is important. So I can have a big lead up to this now. I've been doing some study on Western history. Yeah. And uh, one book in particular I've read, which was very interesting, was Ricardo Duchenne's The Uniqueness of Western Civilization. And so okay. he has argued that uh, very well, very thoroughly, that the Indo-Europeans who first settled in Europe were very restless, very competitive, very libertarian, he describes them, group. And they changed the culture throughout Europe. And he argues then in order to give rise to societies where leaders are not just despots, they really want the honour and the prestige from other free men. So they would desire to be the first among equals in a sense. And that led to a sense of competitiveness, but also automatically that led to constant checking of any sense of authority. And he believed that this sense of competitiveness also gave rise to Greek philosophy, where ideas were not just given by a sage, and that is truth. Right. You can only maybe tweak that a little bit or improve upon it or something like that, maybe. But you can never, ever conflict against that idea. So he believes that all of these ideas of individual liberty and rationalism, a higher degree of rationalism, which is really what he has argued is the, the thing that is most unique about Western civilization, individualism and that libertarian sense of competitiveness there, the Western traits. And he believes that they're, they're things that we should strive to retain as those things are being abandoned by various academic fields today. We in the West, to the rest of the world, we're giving such a mixed message because, you know, I've just spoken about the, the history of the West and how um, the, the seeds of liberty have grown here. And now we have these marvellous theories. But to the, to the rest of the world, you know, they send their brightest minds to our universities. And so they imbibe Keynesian economics, very, very left wing thinking. And when they go and they become you know, the president of some other country, India, they go back to India, all these different countries in the world, they, they share that, that form of economics. And then on the other side of things, we have big military spending really protecting, arguably, corporate interests and mm. being used to defend that abroad. And, so, and we're, we're supposed to be liberating these people as, as well, bear in mind. So... You know, when, when people look at the West and they say, well, this is supposed to be the, the hotbed where liberty and freedom and, you know, li- modern liberal democracies has, has grown, we're sending out such a bag of mixed messages. It's unbelievable. And if I can bring this back to where we started, which was even within the libertarian community, we tend to give out a mixed message as well. There are there are differing ideas and there's lots of leftist ideas within libertarianism too. Do you think that more of a focus on rationalism could be a way to cement our ideas or show that there you can really have some very concrete theories 
within libertarianism that anyone can get behind. And we wouldn't just be joining the troop and saying, oh, hey, we've got all these different ideas within libertarianism and uh, who knows what's right. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, on the on the hobby and stuff, we didn't get into it in too much detail. Um, no. I don't know if your listeners are too interested in the intricacies of this, but uh, since 1988, I've been fascinated with and uh, enamored of his uh, his argumentation ethics, which I think is a way of putting in kind of plain, clear, explicit, rigorous terms, philosophical terms, um, in a way what most people think and feel. Right? It's a way of showing, of course, of course, of course, what you think is wrong. You know, murdering someone. Of course, you could never justify that. And he just elaborates why. I don't know if everyone's interested in such a, such an explication. I am. Um, I found it to be fruitful in my thinking. Um, there's a lot of writing on it. If people want to follow up on it, I've got an article where I summarize. Uh, it's called a "Concise Guard: A Concise Guide to Argumentation Ethics." Yeah, I'll definitely, uh, on my, I'll definitely my website. link to that because that's that's very helpful. But it fascinated me since I first heard it, and I, I, I'm always baffled by the opposition I get to it from libertarians because I'll say, well, do you disagree with the conclusion? <laughs> like, you know, non-aggression principle, and they'll say no. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, so do you think that there is a way to make a coherent argument for aggression <laughs> because that's really what they're saying. If they disagree with argumentation ethics, which yeah. basically says you cannot coherently make an argument for aggression because it's yes. incompatible with the peaceful presuppositions of the very activity of peaceful discourse in the first place. Yes. So I'll say, well, do you think you can make a good argument for aggression? And they, they, just, they just don't have an answer to that. No. That's, that's I found the, that a lot, a lot of his critics are basically people that have no argument at all for liberty. Like they don't really know why they're libertarians, or they can't articulate it. Like, uh, what's your basis for rights? I don't have one. So I think it just bugs them that there's someone who thinks they have an argument. <laughs> I, I think that's what it is. I think it's, I think it's a fear or a hesitation even of supporting it. Just in case there's some big flaw with it and everyone looks stupid then. So um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So so but, they'd but, rather have no argument than a bad argument. But really I do think it's so profound to the extent that I'd say that Hopper one would hope that, you know, history would be very kind to him and that he he would be recognized as being, you know, a huge innovator in the how do I put it, in liberal thought. Right, right. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. I I think it's fair. Um, I mean, I I do believe. I mean, it's probably myopic. It's probably biased. Uh, it's probably a result of limited reading. You can only read so much. But I do believe that the greatest thinkers, <laughs> like of the modern era, are Mises, Rothbard, and Hoppe. I, and I think there's a progression there. Yes. I, I, maybe you could start with Karl Menger or Baron Bavark or someone, but M Mises really was an incredible genius, and he laid the foundation that was necessary uh, for what Rothbard and then Hoppe did later. 
Um, Rothbard really is the first great modern libertarian systematizer, but Hoppe went deeper into Misesian praxeology and also he emphasized more the role of of scarcity, which I think is crucial. And he was a little bit more – he was not an American, so he was a little bit more willing to um, have a skeptical eye towards the common assumptions of the American libertarians about the – the libertarianness of the original American Revolution. So I, I think that helped him be yes. a little bit more radical too with his criticism of democracy and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it was really Rothbard and then Hoppe you know, added a cherry on top and uh, we'll say he completed it, but he really yeah. is, yeah. I think, a, a great pinnacle of, of, of a social, social thought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just the, the, the ultimate yeah. argument for libertarianism and the beauty of it as you've said is that in the very act of trying to argue against it to put an argument forward you are validating the non-aggression principle it's just such a wonderful argument um articulating it to someone who has no idea who hopper is who mises is what any of this is about doesn't even think about rationalism or any of the things we've been talking about a little bit different but the the beauty of it is they already understand it. Um, right. It, it's so, right. It's I agree, so I agree frustratingly completely. simple uh, and straightforward. Well, which is, which is one reason I, I think that's one reason people, these academics, uh, academic libertarians are opposed to it. It's too simple. Hmm. It couldn't have escaped their notice all these years. Exactly. You know, it couldn't have gone up. You know, um, plus a lot of these academic libertarians have an in, they have an investment in keeping it being an open question. You know, so they have something to yeah. do, and they also are proud. <laughs> so They're true. proud. They don't want to admit that this guy figured it out. And there's a lot of personal stuff too. You know, all these conflicts with Rothbard and the Cato Institute and all these yeah. scholars over the yeah. years. It, it, that's one one thing I like is that the modern generations they're washing themselves clean of a lot of these earlier things, so people can look at these things afresh and like more objectively, okay, not care about the personalities that's and you know. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Do you think also if they were to admit that he is right, they'd have to admit that they were wrong in a lot of their early material? Yeah, I th- well, I think that's especially true of older scholars, people in their late 30s to 40s and 50s. Once yeah. you've gotten invested in propounding a certain way of thinking, it's really hard to just admit you were wrong. You know? Yeah, um, it's time wasted. Life. Yeah. They're, inve- yeah. they're invested in a certain way of thinking. But a lot of them yeah. are just not – they're just not principled thinkers. They, they don't think in terms of principles. They want to tinker around the edges. They're, they're basically empiricists or utilitarians. Yes. Right? This is the problem of our age. They basically have succumbed to what Rothbard and the others and Mises you know, have criticized many times, the scientism of our age. Yeah. Um, uh, they have succumbed to it. Partly for career reasons, partly for you know professional reasons, but partly because they just that's what they hear and they want the yeah. uh, approbation of their peers, and they have to talk like they do, yeah. and they don't want to sound like some old-fashioned cult, Catholic scholastic weird German rationalist scholar or something. You know, it's, yeah. it just seems odd to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, must, I mean that's that's why I was trying to focus so much on the rationalism. I mean, not just because it's been important for the development of libertarian principles throughout Western history, 
but because of this brilliant school, Mises, uh, Rothbard and Hopper, uh, uh, and they are defending that rationalist streak against the sliding away of economics, uh, political science, all of that, into the scientism that we see in the harder sciences, as you've said. Yeah, I, I see that as being the dichotomy, basically. And I well, yeah, I think if, uh, economics has dominated a lot of the uh, the scholarly, you know, aspects of, of 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 the people that talk about these things, and you know, I guess if you're a, a rising, aspiring, ambitious economist, you don't want to believe that Mises figured it all out already. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you believe in kind of the rationalist approach to economics. Really, it's pretty simple, and everything else is uh, is contingent conjecture and empiricism, um, which is not really, in a sense, real economics. It's almost like future history, you know. Yeah. Um, and we they don't want to believe that. Really, we sound dogmatic. Well, they, they want and something in... to do. They want something to do. They want to figure out something <laughs> else. And if you say we've already figured out the basic axioms, then they don't like that because there's nothing left for them to do. In fundamental economics, so they yeah. change what fundamental economics is. They they make it empiricist, like Milton Friedman would have it. I think Pete Betke said, you know, oh, we should stop saying we're Austrian economists. We're just in favor of good economics. I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, educating people about those things is important. That's why I feel it's so important to talk to someone like you about these things as well. Then we come to a point where we say, okay, people have, in large part, have almost no, no sense of uh, a rationalistic basis, something concrete for their thoughts. So then how do we as libertarians then introduce uh, something, an argument as powerful as the argumentation ethics, which Hopper has developed? Yeah, I think that for society to develop, there have to be norms that people can actually follow, right? And for norms to be followed, they have to appeal to people to some way. You don't you can't expect everyone to have a PhD in philosophy, right? In society. You ha so you have to have some kind of common sense norms. And I think there's a division of sort of specialization. Almost everyone knows there are different levels of expertise in society. There are rough and ready norms. There are ways people get along. They develop these kind of rough and ready customs on the on the wild frontiers when they're expanding, when there's not enough uh, courthouses in town or lawyers to, to make the fine print or to enforce contracts. People come up with other solutions, right? Yes. But as society becomes richer and more sophisticated and there's more people and more commerce and people live closer together, then these things can get more refined, and people tend to know… Look, people tend to know, for example, the, the very um, rudimentary distinction between law and being a judge in your own case, which like John Locke talked about. Like the danger of being a judge in your own case is something that's intuitive. Everyone sort of knows that if you have the choice, you should call some authority or you should get your neighbors to witness. You shouldn't just go be a vigilante and execute someone who's done you something wrong. For various reasons. Number one, maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're making a mistake. Number two, you're going to be biased in your own case, and you may overpunish. Right? And then number three, you're going to present to yourself, yourself to your neighbors as someone who is not respecting established procedures and norms, 
and you're going to look like a danger to them. You're going to hurt your rep- your reputation if nothing else. Yes. So there are reasons that people tend to respect these procedures, and they tend to know um, that what might work in an emergency case is not the normal thing that you do. Right. So I think people by and large tend to understand there are experts out there. There are people that have studied things for a long time, and most people are humble enough not to presume that they know something that they don't. If you just take religious people, they go to church and listen to a preacher or to a minister. They're they're listening to an expert who's giving them an exegesis on the Bible or giving them some lessons. There's sort of a natural hierarchy… That's always been the case in human civilization. There's always been natural hierarchies, natural authorities. You go to the um, elder of the village, ask them a question. Yeah, the wise man, the per- the person who has uh, had the most success, whatever. Um, and I think that's what that's the only way that these things can be spread is that you have to work within that reality. So you talk about argumentation ethics. I mean, I personally think argumentation ethics is a revolutionary and mind blowing. Idea, but in a way, it's incremental. It's sort of like the final capstone of ideas that have been around for a long time. Yes, yeah. It builds on and it appeals to natural intuitions and things that other people exactly. have seen in various degrees forever. I, I don't think Rothbard would say. I mean, I don't think Hoppe would say it's basically builds on Rothbard. Rothbard saw hints of it earlier. I would think he would say it actually builds more on Habermas and Appel, these German scholars who were socialists, but Hoppe understood scarcity and Austrian economics and Rothbardian yes. radical political insights and added those things to the basic insights of, of argumentation or discourse ethics, and that's what made it become so powerful. The purpose of, say, writing a treatise on that is not really to sweep the world, the 7 billion, 8 billion people in the world with a love for discourse ethics. You know, There's always a pyramid of… It's it's got to be compatible with natural intuitions and natural human interactions in the first place, customs. But when there comes a time when there's two theories being discussed, right? when the Soviet Union collapses and people are wondering what the hell happened, then the the work the Austrians had done for 60 years becomes important. It had basically been irrelevant for 60 years, and then the Soviet Union collapses, and now we have a ready-made theory… … to format and to explain it. Not everyone read it, but I can tell you that in 2015, there's a lot more people that understand to one degree or the other the problems with having a centrally planned economy than in 1985 where sure. the wall fell. So there are teaching moments in society, and as understanding ratchets up, as wealth ratchets up, as sophistication ratchets up, then theory is there ready to help them. Now, as a practical matter, how we actually teach people about liberty, I think, to be honest, argumentation ethics is more of a theoretical thing for people that are really getting deep into it. They want to understand how this works out, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You, could never, you could never use a theory to persuade a criminal who's determined to harm you. you but most of your neighbors are not criminals. They have shared values. So I think practically you have to appeal to those values. You have to do a character analysis and estimate what kind of character these people have and decide whether they're more or less like you. 
and appeal to their shared values. And then you say, well, don't you agree with prosperity and A, B, and C? They'll say yes. And then you basically have to sprinkle in a little bit of economic literacy <laughs> and say, well, for example, most of your neighbors would probably be in support of the of socialized medicine and the minimum wage. But yes. there are also some people they just are they're just economically illiterate. So I actually kind of think the problem with the world is economic illiteracy. Because if most of your neighbors really understood that being in favor of a minimum wage would actually cause unemployment or being in favor of socialized medicine or socialized medicine would cause the quality of medical care to be worse, they would actually rethink their positions because they're not actually malevolent. They're not actually misanthropes. They're just economically uninformed. Well, when people think of economics these days, they think of, you know, you're watching the news and there's all the numbers going on the screen and they'll maybe show you some graphs and things like that. People have no idea what that's about. But I think economics is just about human interaction. I, I think once people understand that there's something very intuitive about that, you can have some pretty important discussions with them. And I think they can begin to see very easily what is wrong with the economic situation, particularly here in Europe. The, the frustrating thing about this for me, Stefan, is that it's all so very intuitive. And I think people do have lots of positive things to say when you, you really break down what it is that we, we believe in and we love. And I do think the abandoning of the rational tradition of the West is a part of people thinking, well, truth is just relative and you know, this guy might have his truth and I've got my truth and who knows what's right really. And I think that sort of attitude robs people, in a sense, from being able to make very concrete ideas in their mind, particularly when it comes to what we're talking about basic human interaction. Yeah, and it, it, it could be that people have uh, rebelled from this sort of uh, strident idea of absolutes and morals because they have seen the failure of so many systems over the last few centuries, right? Yeah, that's so right. They, ba they basically don't trust the politicians, the philosophers, the pointy heads. you know. And I actually think that's a good impulse in a way. I can understand not trusting these people and then just well, science has natural science has given us the Eiffel Tower and you know airplanes and radio yeah. and the internet. In trusting that instead because it kind of works and you can verify it. So I understand a deep hostility and skepticism towards it, but I think it has turned towards this sort of reflexive um, skepticism, as you say, like uh, we can't know anything for sure. And in part, that's been undergirded by philosophy itself, right? A, a, a major portion of philosophy yeah, that's very basically says that. They say that, yes. well, we can't know anything for sure. Yes. Of course, they, they say that as if they know it, so they're contradicting themselves, right? Exactly. Here's, here's one thing we know for sure that we can't yeah. know anything for sure. I mean, you know, and people just, and that's they just wash their hands of it. Really? Right. It's right. Ironic, yeah. So I think it depends upon what you think the audience should be. So if you're thinking like an activist, like a lot of young libertarians do, like political activism, so then you're thinking of a message we can use to sell some political party or some political candidate getting elected. 
I'm not sold on that idea. I don't I don't think that's the way to go. If you mean just the general spreading of ideas, I don't know. I mean, things happen all the time that you never expected, right? Someone becomes like, like a stupid example, but Donald Trump here in the US right now is very popular. And no one could have anticipated that because he's sort of seen as a buffoon. Yeah. But he's popular because he is I think he's popular right now because he is he is basically making the regular political dialogue look stiff and boring and bullshit. He's basically yeah. he's basically calling it like everyone sees it, and people are just ready for something like that. Hmm. So you could never have predicted that. So what kind of message, what kind of tactic, what kind of strategy would work? I sometimes think we should go back to basics, and there's there's some lines and some works by Leonard Reed and the earlier Foundation for Economic Education stuff. And his idea is that you really can't go out there and try to convert people. You have to basically be a, mag a beacon or a magnet. You should basically be a bright light. You should have excellence yeah. in your own life, like be successful, be virtuous, be honest. Be the kind of person people turn to when they need advice. And if you're the kind of person that, that has a reputation for being wise and fair and successful and honest… In your life, then people will turn to you for that. So in a way, you could say forget about the propaganda. Forget about the, the tactics strategy. Just yes. work 100% on your own life. Just try to be excellent in your life, and yeah. then you will attract people by the power of you know, the power of attraction. Instead of you going to them to try to convert them, they will come to you because you're the, one of the kind of people they want to emulate. And they'll think if he's really so good in these areas in his life, maybe he… Maybe his thoughts on politics or norms or whatever are not something not so crazy. Maybe it's something I should give a hearing to. So the problem is that's not sexy and that's not attractive to impatient young libertarians who want yeah. to make a change now. Damn it! I just I think that they can. the The problem is the people that go into libertarianism for that reason. I call them way station libertarians, like they're passing through. And okay. I've seen it so many times. They're, they're just passing through because if they don't get their way, they're going to pass on to the next thing, whether it's Zen Buddhism or environmentalism or vegetarianism or whatever. You know, they're going to have another thing next because they didn't get their instant gratification. They, they weren't able to change the world in their three years of the Ron Paul campaign or whatever because they, were, they had the wrong goals in the first place. They, they, they thought that that was the way to change things. I don't blame them for getting sour on politics, but… They should never have expected politics to be the way to make a change in the first place. So yeah. I, I guess I would say that really I'm kind of a Randian in a sense. I think that we should be selfish, and you should try to live your own life as a good life. So you should look around the world and say, where do I live? Where could I live? What's the situation like? How do I live a, a, a successful life given what's out there? I mean I personally try to look at the government. It's like wild animals so that it doesn't drive me crazy. So just like it's a t there's sure. a typhoon or there's disease or there's wild animals or there's mortality, I look at the government as a background condition that's an, an obstacle or a challenge in life that we have to overcome. I know it's yeah. normative, and I know they could be, be better, and they, they are evil in a sense, but as a practical matter, you have to be aware of them and navigate around them. And it's possible in today's world to, to do that. 
I'm not saying you should do that at 100% and be a, a solipsist and forget about everyone else, but you need to succeed in your own life. You know, it's like people say, uh, how much money should I give to charity? And my, my question is, well, have you paid off your mortgage yet? <laughs> you know, when, yeah. you, when you're debt when you're debt free and on the road to retirement, then you can start giving to charity. Yeah. But pay your mortgage off. Make sure your kids go to school. You know, make sure that you take care of your family and all these kind of things. If you do that, you've done more than most people, and yeah. then you're the kind of person that could help educate, learn, inspire other people, and living a decent life while you're at it. I see nothing wrong with that. I'm approach. really glad you you said all of that. That's a very important message. If a libertarian is going to convince anyone of anything, yeah, it's if they've got their life together, if they are consistent, not you know, not just um, in their thinking and the way that they're educating and bettering themselves and learning more about not just libertarianism but but, but other things, improving their life, improving the lives of other people around them just by the way that they're living and showing that well, you can you can you can be selfish, like you say, and Actually, you're providing a lot to the people around you. Well, and, and I, I would also say that, look, we come across already to regular people as kooks. If if you're against the Federal Reserve, yeah, yeah, you know, or if you think that the U.S. shouldn't have gotten involved in World War II, or you know, what whatever our kind of non-mainstream views are, we're yeah. already relegated already. Because really most people fringe. have never, really yeah, fringe. they've never heard these ideas. They think no. you're they think you're almost equivalent to a conspiracy nut. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Although I think we're not. If you just have a consistent, <laughs> if you have a consistent uh, ethical principle, and you say I'm just against aggression. I mean, yes. think of me like the Amish. You know, the Amish live in peace in Pennsylvania, and they don't hurt anyone. You, we let them alone. We we kind of respect that they're a little bit weird, but we let we give them their own way. Basically, what we're saying is what you believe, but we're more consistent about it because we're really passionate about it. I agree. We've got to start from ourselves. How are we living our lives? How are we interacting with other people? And like you say, you, you know, if you can get through and your kids are okay. And you're doing all right with the mortgage. You, you've done a lot, and if you can genuinely believe the things we do, and you act upon them, and you are a good person, as we would say, that's huge. And your impact is is huge for doing that. And I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, what I want and, and my life. Um, yeah, you you'll meet these people on occasion that they'll say something like, uh, "Well, when I was your age, I was idealistic too." You know, it's this sort of condescending thing yeah. where they're, they're basically yeah. saying you'll grow, you'll grow out of it. Don't worry. You grow out of your enthusiasm, yeah. And I, I always think, well, Murray Rothbard was sixty-seven when he died, and he was an anarchist when he died. So I don't think <laughs> everyone loses idealism and hope. So maybe if you live a good life and you just outlast them and just say, "Hey, I'm sixty <laughs> years old and I'm still an anarchist." Now, what are you going to say? You know, <laughs> that's one thing you can do. You say, like, I've been a consistent, principled, good person, anarchist all my life, or libertarian. You know, it's possible. You don't have to. You don't have yeah. to be condescending and say you're going to grow out of it someday. You'll learn the real world. The real world. You know, th th there's this idea that the real world. It's like if someone uh, every now and then I'll criticize a movie. I'll say, well, why did Superman get the power to do this? It made no sense. They'll say it's just a movie. Like yeah, but he didn't. He didn't turn into Batman and 
17 minutes, that would not have made any sense, you know? Yeah. You can actually criticize some theories, you know, for making uh, no sense. And I just My think wife that, hates watching movies with me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're probably too, too, too analytical or critical. I rip it apart. <laughs> you're just like, just go out. with it. Yeah, but in the in, in what we do, there's the world which is real, and we can acknowledge that. We don't need to pretend that people aren't somewhat statist. We don't need to pretend there's not war. You know, we know why 9/11 happened. It was blowback from. I mean, this is so obvious, right? You don't need to make up this huge, bizarre conspiracy about it. You can recognize the distinction between what's real and what's ideal. And when people say you're an idealist for that, you can simply point out. Don't you believe anything is right and wrong? You yeah, know, you exactly. you think the Supreme Court was wrong in this decision. You think the government shouldn't have done that. You think that it was wrong when this guy burst into someone's house and and murdered them, right? So you think there's a distinction between what happens and what should have happened. That's the only distinction we need to make, and we can appeal to that because everyone sees that. And we need to simply yeah. say that's what we're doing as libertarians. We are making that systematic, and we're talking about it on a grand scale. We're talking about what the laws should be, how we should relate to each other in society you know, through this government thing that you guys think needs to run everything. Yeah. Um, so I think that you can almost always appeal to something you have in common with your average decent person that's part of society. They, they understand the difference between reality and ideals. They, they're just sick of the, the pointy-head intellectuals who've led them down the wrong path, and I understand that skepticism too. But you can say, listen, this is realistic. You know what's right, and you know what's real. There are differences, but we all have these values and these views, and you can build on that. I think so. We just need to just remind them of their own moral compass a bit. That's why I always I always go for the non-aggression principle. I never phrase it that way, of course. I just sort of talk to them about the fact that really they don't believe that you should ever coerce someone, especially to force them to do something you have decided is good for them. Right. And really, we've come back to where the conversation began, haven't we? It sort yeah, of begins, I think so. Begins and ends with that, really. I think it does. Anyway, Stefan, I've taken up so much of your time. I still enjoy it very much. I did too. And, uh, I did too. Yeah, it's very helpful to talk to you. Nice talking to you. Thanks yeah. very much.